Let us pray. Father, we are again grateful for your word. And as we come to it, we ask that you would open our ears and our hearts to hear what you would have us to hear and receive what you would have us to receive and to do as you would have us to do. We ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. When I first read the readings for this Sunday, uh, my initial instinct was to focus on what is the most obvious theme in the three Old Testament uh, gospel and epistle reading, which is that of sight, seeing, our inability to see, God's ability to see perfectly. Um, and it is, as you've, if you've listened to me preach before, you know it is one of my more favorite themes to speak at because it is so prevalent and so beautiful in Scripture. But then I felt like I should address what may be the jarring and somewhat confusing juxtaposition of our Old Testament reading in 1 Samuel and our epistle reading in Ephesians. And for most of the week, I was working on that. Late in the week, I felt a very strong impression that I should not preach that sermon. So I went back to the readings and felt that I should instead walk through Psalm 23 today. Um, I didn't want to because in just a few weeks after Easter, we have Good Shepherd Sunday, which we'll read this psalm again. But I felt very strongly that this is what God would have us to do today. So we are going to have a meditation on Psalm 23. We're simply going to walk through the psalm together today, which is to me a bit intimidating thing to do because it is so well known. If there is one passage in Scripture that people know, whether they know much about the Bible at all, it, is, it might well be Psalm 23. But it warrants that attention. It is that good and that great a psalm. It is written by David, who was the preeminent shepherd of the Old Testament. It is written about, whether David realized it or not, it is written about the preeminent shepherd of the whole world the good shepherd, Christ. And I will read this psalm as one who sees this whole psalm about our Savior, Christ. He begins by saying, The Lord is my shepherd. This is a declaration. It is a statement that Christ, God, His Lord, has taken upon Himself the responsibility to shepherd, to protect, to care for, to lead, to guide, to provide for his people. And this is an incredible statement. This is an incredible responsibility that God says, this is mine, I am here, I am here to take care of you. It is rightfully seen as a comfort. We should take great comfort and joy in the fact that God has not left us to wander on our own to fend for ourselves, but he says, I am your shepherd. And we in turn look to him and say, the Lord is my shepherd. But it is more than just a statement about God taking responsibility for us. This is a statement of commitment. This is David saying, the Lord is my shepherd. I am his sheep. I'm committed to him. He is the one that I follow. It's a statement of commitment to the shepherd. 
Not everyone can say that. Not everyone can say, the Lord is my shepherd. In the great shepherd passage in John 10, Jesus himself says as much. He looks at people and says, you are not of my sheep. You are other people's sheep. My sheep know my voice and they follow me. So when I say the Lord is my shepherd, I'm not just making a statement about Christ. I'm making a statement about myself. I am committed to following the good shepherd. To doing his will. Not deciding for myself which path I should take. Not deciding for myself what is right or wrong. Not looking at those who are not of his sheep. Not looking at the world and saying, well, I like that, I'll take that. And I like this from Jesus, I'll take that. Not listening to other voices, but the voice of Christ. And saying, I will follow you. You may not understand it. The sheep does not always understand why the shepherd is doing what he's doing. Or why he says to do this and to go this path rather than another but he follows the voice of the shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I will follow him. And as I do that, the rest of the psalm follows that commitment. The, great, the other promises and goodness of Psalm 23 follow the commitment to following the shepherd. As I follow the shepherd, I shall not want. Want. The word in English has two meanings. Want as in to lack or to desire. The word in Hebrew is the former, to lack. I shall not lack. But I think it is, I don't know if it's fortuitous or good, that the King James translators picked this word with its double meaning to represent the lack or the lack of lack Right? The provision that is given to the sheep that follow Christ. Because it is our desire for Him. And what He gives us fills all of our wants, both in its lack and what we truly desire. When we are truly His sheep, we desire what the shepherd has to give for us. Not what the world would give us, but what He would give us. So our desires are in the Lord. We've delighted ourselves in Him. What we want, what we truly want and desire is the shepherd and whatever comes from His hand. So whatever it is He gives us, we say, that is what I need. Maybe not what I thought I needed, but that is what I need. I do not understand well enough as a sheep to know what it is that I lack. I don't even know what I lack. I will trust the shepherd to provide for me, and that's what I want, and that is what I desire. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He make, maketh me to lie down. It is a very specific verb. And it is used, I'm told, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I'm told, it is specifically for the making of animals to lie down. The shepherd 
making animals to lie down. Making them, causing them to. We don't always know, as I just said, we don't always know what's good for us. And the shepherd makes us do these things that are good. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside the still waters. Still here meaning waters of rest. Waters of rest. He makes us rest. Rest is an important part of Scripture. We treat it like a luxury. If I have time, I will rest. If I can find the time, wouldn't it be great to find the time to get some rest? We say that, but most of our lives, at least in this area of the world, belie what we say. We are not prone to rest, yet God commands it of us. It is the very first thing he does after creation. He himself. Did he really have to tell us that? He rested. I don't even know what it means for God to rest. But he does. He says, I've just made the world, and let me tell you the first thing I'm going to do. I'm going to rest. And the greatest promises he gives us is rest in him. He commanded his people to do it. Once a week, you will rest. It's not a luxury. If you're following the shepherd, you will rest. I mean that in, the, in, in all the sense of forms of, of rest. You'll take time where you don't work. You'll take time where you ignore the distractions of the world. I think I have a little inkling in my mind, and this is for myself as well, that one of the reasons we are so insistent on not doing it, whether or not we say, well, we'd like to do it, is because it scares us. It scares us not to have our time and our mind and our lives filled with an activity. It scares us the idea of sitting down alone with God, of not having distractions, of taking time off, scares us. Who knows what God will tell us? Who knows what God will reveal to us about ourselves? We might be confronted with our idols. We might be confronted with the things we love more than God. We might be confronted with all the emptiness the empty, vain things we filled our lives with. Maybe part of the reason why God commands His people to rest because He wants us to be confronted by those things. And He wants us to be confronted not just with the emptiness of the things we fill our lives with, but the fullness of what He offers Himself. So the Good Shepherd leads us by the waters of rest. I will note that very often in the history of the church 
interpreting this psalm, it is seen in the waters of rest, the waters of baptism, of leading us into his rest, the rest that he has promised. And the next line continues that theme. He restoreth my soul. Soul here meaning life, and restore meaning giving back. He gives back life as he would in baptism. He gives me back life, his life. Restores to store again, to fill up the stores of life in his people as we follow him. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. His name's sake. Naming is really important in the Bible. Really important anywhere, but it's really important in the Bible. God names. In the Old Testament, he regularly renames his people as he is in covenant relationship with them. He says, here's your name. He names himself in what may be a very important passage of Scripture. Who are you? I am. I'm naming myself. And then in what is extremely important for his people in the New Testament, he says, I give you my name. You carry my name. You are my people. You are wed to me. And as you marry me, I give you my name. And you carry it with all the responsibilities that come with it. Do not take my name in vain. Yes, don't use it in a silly way, but don't carry my name in vain. Don't carry my name and profane it. In our epistle reading today in Ephesians, Paul says, do not let sexual immorality or impurity or covetousness even be named among you. It should not even be named among you. Why? Because you carry God's name. And God says, do not, do not sully my name, the name that you carry. Do not speak lies of me. Do not speak lies of me by saying of me the things that are not true. Do not profane me by carrying my name and living a life that is immoral. And if we follow him for his name's sake, he leads us in the paths of righteousness. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. This is the center, the center of this poem, the very middle, the turning point. And it is rightly the most famous passage. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. Notice here in the middle, in the center, we go from speaking of God in the third person, the Lord is my shepherd, to turning to him and speaking him directly. For you are with me. And that happens when we enter the valley of the shadow of death. We no longer speak about him. We speak to him. Even poetically here in the Hebrew, 
um, we find that this is a emphasized line. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. The entry of that, entry into this line, is long. And this is true in Hebrew as well, I'm told. Yea, though I walk, many syllables here. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear nothing. I fear nothing is emphasized in its shortness, in its punchiness. The valley is long. The fear is non-existent. Evil here has many meanings. It means bad, evil in the sense of, of bad. It also means suffering. It also means unpleasantness, means harm. I fear none of these things. God spends much of the time in the Bible telling us not to fear. I've said it before, the most, one of the most common commands in Scripture, do not fear. Except for one thing. He commands us to fear Him. And that's, sometimes you think that is an Old Testament thing. It's not. New Testament commands us to fear God as well. And in our time of very democratic age, culture that we live in, this is not acceptable because we don't, we don't fear other people. We don't respect other people. We're all, we're all in the same plane, right? We're all equally important. We don't revere a king. We don't have anybody lording over us for the most part. At least we say, say we don't. Because we are all equal people. And we, we tend to treat God the same way. With a casualness. As if, he, as if he's one of us. God says, no, it's not healthy for you. Not just because I'm just need my respect. It's not healthy for you. You fear me. And yes, that means all respect. But every time in the Bible someone comes in contact with God, it also means fear, afraid, fall down on your face, can't speak, stay away from me. I'm too afraid. For all the bringing us close, for all the love and warmth that God offers, we are never to lose that fear and respect. He's not, he's not, he's not just a buddy. Yes, we, are, we, we worship and we're so joyful that God came and lived among us in the person of Christ. But we fear him, we respect him. And I suspect, I suspect that the more we fear him, the less we fear the valley of the shadow of death. Like our loves, our loves need to be properly ordered. Love God, love God, and everything else first, and everything else falls in order. All of our other loves. Fear God, fear God, and I suspect our other fears fall into place as well. Respect Him. He's more awesome. He is more awesome than the valley of the shadow of death. I fear no evil because that God, that fearful, awesome God is with me. What do I have to fear?
What else do I have to fear? What an incredible statement. That God is with me. And he's my shepherd. He said he'd take care of me. I don't know how to do it. don't know what it'll feel like. Seems to promise that that evil will come. He's not saying I will fear no evil because it's not going to happen. No, it seems like it will happen. The suffering, the unpleasant, is going to happen. But God is with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Interesting to me, this, I would have thought, in the valley of the shadow of death, your great arms would reach around me. I would, the, the, as is common in the Psalms, God's feathers and wings comforted me, like a, like a mother bird covering her chicks. But thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Rod and staff, discipline and authority. That which disciplines his people and that which shows his authority over all things. I trust that in the valley of the shadow of death, in the difficult and dark times, you are going to do what is necessary in my life to purify me and to make me what I should be. And I trust that there is no situation over which you have no authority. There is nothing I will enter into that is beyond you, that is bigger than you. Into which you say, really don't know who's going to win this one. The world, the flesh, and the devil, really, I mean, God's in a battle. Not sure if he's going to prevail this time. His staff, the symbol of authority over all things. His rod. That which both disciplines the sheep and also defends them against the evil one. I can trust God. I can trust the good shepherd to see me through. Not just, not just see me through the valley of the shadow of death, but if I will follow him, then to purify and make me. Make me a better sheep. Make me more like even the good shepherd in those times. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. This truly is a picture of luxury, of goodness, that comes out of the valley of the shadow of death. This comes after, right? What's waiting on the other end? His goodness. His bountiful provision. You prepare a table before me. And not just... Not just in heaven, in the presence of my enemies. Enemies are vague here. Which, what enemies? Doesn't, doesn't tell us. But God gives us his provision now. In the presence of my enemies. Now anointest my head with oil. It's refreshing. This is a picture of something that refreshes us. Also medicinal, oil is often medicinal. It heals. And my cup runneth over. The church is always seen in this because of going through Mark 6 as a Eucharistic reference. In Mark 6, which is the multiplication of the loaves and fishes, the feeding of the 5,000, 
there are strong references to this psalm. For example, Jesus, what he, in, a, in what is a strange thing, especially considering where they're at in Israel, he says he looks at them and he makes them sit down on the green grass. He says, sit down on the green grass. The shepherd is making the sheep sit down on the green grass. And then he prepares a meal for them. When he prepares the meal for them, he does it in a very Eucharistic fashion. He takes, he blesses, he breaks, he gives. The same verbs in the same order that he, of what he will do when he institutes the Eucharist in the upper room. He's giving himself to us. He prepares a table. He prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. So now as we walk in this world, he says, I've not left you alone. I've given you bountiful provision. What? My very self. We take this far too lightly often. when we just see it as a nice remembrance. Think about what Christ has done. He says, no, no, no. I'm preparing a meal for you in the presence of your enemies. I'm giving you my very self. When you come here, you're, you're taking me. You're communing with me. You're becoming one body in me. I prepared a table for you. I've not left you alone. Come meet me here. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We follow Christ, and now we have something following us. It's a train. As we follow Christ, as we follow our shepherd, he says, goodness and mercy follow me. I am encompassed roundabout by Christ. What is goodness and mercy? It is the goodness and mercy of Christ. I don't just have him protecting me in the front. I have his promise that he's got my back. As I follow him. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The worship that I do now, the worship that I give now, is the worship that I will give, hopefully, well, expectantly, in a more pure form someday when I am fully in his presence. We've started worshiping now, and that will continue through eternity. He leads us into eternity, into his presence as we follow him. We do not know the way. That's what the disciples say. Where are you going? We don't know the way. Yes, you do. It's just following me. That's the way. You follow me. I will get you there. I will get you there. You follow me. Trust me. I'm your shepherd. Be my sheep. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.